Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. As we continue expositing Revelation verse by verse, today we look at what Jesus called the synagogue of Satan, found in Revelation 3 verse 9. What is this synagogue and who is part of it? We'll find the answer takes us to Jesus' other teachings in the Gospels. We encourage you to follow along in your Bible. Here is Pastor Alex Cateroja. So if you haven't already, if you can go ahead and take your deck and, and Bible or electronic device and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. We are still making our way through this letter to the church in Philadelphia. And the title of our message today is The Synagogue of Satan. Doesn't that sound pretty provocative? The Synagogue of Satan. What's the Synagogue of Satan? Who is the Synagogue of Satan? Well, we'll touch a little bit on that as we continue on with our study into this letter. And we're going to find ourselves being drawn to other places in Scripture to give us even more insight into this group called the Synagogue of Satan. They're a specific group, and they're a group, when all is said and done, will even expand beyond them to the unbelieving world. So we'll see what the Scripture has in store for us. And here, as a reminder, here is where we are on our map and in our journey into the seven churches. We are looking at this letter written to Philadelphia, as you can see here on the map. It is close to Ephesus, Laodicea, and Smyrna out of the seven churches. And it is still um, in, in its vicinity is in the area of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And what we'll do today is we'll do our scripture reading. We will read the entire letter. It's a short read, verses 7 through 13. And then we will cover and pick up in verses 8 and 9. So with that, let's get reacquainted with our passage for today. Revelation 3, and we'll pick it up in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there is our short letter and our short read into 
this sixth letter to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. We've covered verse 7 in the last couple of studies, so we're going to pick it up in the first half of verse 8. So let's relook at the first half of verse 8. So Jesus says there, he says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. So I know, I oida, your deeds. Deeds is another way to say your works or your behavior. Remember, in the vision in chapter 1, Jesus was standing amongst the seven lampstands. And one of those seven lampstands was representative of this church in Philadelphia. So by this time, Jesus already assessed their works and their deeds. And he is acknowledging that here. He says, I know, I, I am fully aware of their deeds or works and behavior. And what's pretty neat, at least about the church in Philadelphia, is there's only commendation. There is no condemnation in this letter and to this church. So because of this, because Jesus didn't, when he examined them and didn't find anything to rebuke, he said something. He goes, I know your deeds. And he's pretty much saying, you've passed the test. And because of that, he goes, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. So let's, let's talk about that. What open door is being referred to here? Well, for starters, and here's where I want us to make sure we don't get this confused. The open door cannot mean the Lord Jesus himself. So in the parable of the good shepherd, Jesus claimed, he says, I am the door of the sheep. And that's in John 10. In that parable, Jesus was making a contrast between the evil shepherds and him being the good shepherd. And part of this passage communicates to us, and Jesus communicates and clarifies, that the sheep are his fathers. And so Jesus' sheep, which is his father's sheep, may only enter through Christ to be brought to the Father. So when Jesus made this claim, he was rebuking the religious leaders of that day who were tasked of being over the sheep, the people of Israel. And he's making a contrast. You are an evil shepherd. And he goes, I am the good shepherd. And he goes, the sheep belong to my Father, and those which the Father has given me, I will lose none. And... I am the door of the sheep. I am the door by which the sheep may enter to be brought back to God the Father. So when we read loosely Revelation, he says, I have set before you an open door. We might just, oh, it's talking about Jesus. He's just talking about himself in another figurative way. It cannot mean that. So let's exposit what this means. So in the construction of the Greek, he says, I have put before you an open door. Here's how the construction can be rendered. I have granted or caused an open door to be opened before you. Literally. And this is further clarification by just the construction of the Greek. That G Jesus is not the open door in this statement. He says, I have caused or granted or caused an open door to be opened before you. He's speaking about something besides himself. So in verse 7, which we've covered the past couple of studies, we learn, remember, what was Jesus, what can Jesus open and no one shut, and Jesus shut and no one opened, was referring to what? The kingdom of David. 
And we know that even when Jesus earlier in the verse prior was making reference to this open and shut door, it was a direct reference to the kingdom of David and it is a direct prophecy or reference to Isaiah 22. And since the Father has given Jesus the Christ, the keys, and have placed the kingdom of David on His shoulders, Jesus has authority to open and let people in and authority to shut and keep people out of the kingdom. So the open door is referring to the actual door of the kingdom of David. I have set before you an open door. I have granted or caused before you an open door. He is referring still to the kingdom of David. And we talked about this last week. There's going to be an actual physical, literal kingdom with a gate or a door. And that door, Jesus is going to cause to be opened. And He is the one who has authority to open and to shut. To keep people in and to take people out and keep people out. So he's communicating that they they have been found worthy to be allowed to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying, I know your deeds. And he goes, and to reward you for your faithfulness, I am granting or cause the kingdom of David to be open for you. That's a pretty cool promise. He's saying they've been found worthy to be allowed to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I did come across another parallel truth. You're like, okay, that's, we got that. And, and this is just a practice. I try to find when the Scripture uses similar words to find other parallel accounts so that we can get a little more insight. So what I did was, I, where else is open and door mentioned together? And it took me to Colossians 4. So I want to take us there. And we'll pick it up in chapter, oh yeah, chapter 4. We'll read the first four verses. And Paul writes there, he goes, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. And he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. He says, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So here, Paul, in this passage, he asked the believers in Colossae, he says, pray that God will open them a door for the word to proclaim the gospel. So here in Colossians 4, the open door is being given the opportunity to proclaim and preach the gospel. And Paul was asking for prayer in that. So thus, when Jesus says, I have put before you an open door which no one can open and shut, if you ask me, There are two parallel truths going on here. Truth number one, I believe that this is prophecy that these faithful believers will be allowed to walk through the open door which Jesus will open and no one can shut when the kingdom of God is established at the end of the age. I believe that. And I believe the scripture is clear. What is equally true and the parallel truth is because of their faithfulness, Jesus has granted them authority and opening to proclaim the gospel as well. And if you keep these truths in mind, it flows nicely into the latter half of verse 8. So let's look at the latter half of verse 8. He goes, because you have little power, and I've kept my word, and have not denied my name. Okay, I'm going to get in the habit of asking us questions to make sure we're following on the same pace. He goes, because you have little power. Who's you? The believers in Philadelphia. He goes, because you have little power, and have kept my word and have not 
denied my name. And he says, you have little power, is in the present tense. Little power is milka dunamis. Milka pertains to something, there's, it's, when you say milka or little, it's something limited in quantity. It's few, it's limited in amount. And dunamis speaks of the ability or power to perform a particular activity. So Jesus granted this open door because there were a few of them with the ability or power to persevere. You know what? There wasn't any condemnation to the believers in Philadelphia because there was few of them to begin with. So don't think that this church, there's this idea, it's not large. He's saying because you have little power, you're limited in amount, there's limited amount of you, there's a limited quantity of you because you're just the few of you with the ability or the power to perform, and you've kept my word and I've denied my name, I'm going to grant you an open door so that those who are there will have the ability or power to persevere and also have the opportunity to continue in the proclamation of the gospel. Here's another way to say this. We're all familiar with the Marines' motto, the few, the proud, the Marines. Well, I don't know how I come up with this stuff, but... It can be said of them, the few, the faithful, the Philadelphian believers. There weren't many of them, but the few of them that were there, they have kept His Word, they have not denied Jesus' name, anoma, or authority, and because of that, Jesus has granted them an open door to enter into the kingdom in the future and to proclaim the gospel now. Let's go on to verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, because I will make them come down and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So the beginning of verse 9, he says, Behold, I will cause. That's prophecy. That's something that's going to happen ahead of them. What, what is, what's going to happen? Or when is that going to happen? So he says, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan. When is that going to take place? I'll, ask us, I'll give us a clue. Keys or kleis and open and closed door, which was just in the, the verses prior. When will this prophecy take place? I will cause. When the kingdom is here. When the kingdom is here, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, and I will make them come down and uh, make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. I will cause. When the kingdom of David is here, this is going to happen. Well, who's the synagogue of Satan? Well, we've touched on this in our previous study when we went, were in chapter 2, verse 9. But the synagogue, it's not the ecclesia, the church, you know, where the church meets and congregates or when we gather as a church. The synagogue is where the Jews would meet every Sabbath for religious worship and instruction. So I will cause those in the synagogue of Satan. So Jesus is referring to a group who meet regularly for religious worship and instruction. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, just read, again, I'm, I'm in the Gospels now, when you, when, you're probably already familiar with this, but when you go through the Gospels again, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, 
They capture the essence of who their father really was. We know the story. Jesus says, you are of your father, who? The devil. Who was he talking to? The synagogue of Satan. But they were like, oh no, but we're Abraham's descendants. He goes, if you were Abraham's descendants, you wouldn't try to kill me. In fact, you would have rejoiced just as Abraham rejoiced because he saw my day and was glad. But because you're trying to kill me, you're showing who your real father is. You are of your father, the devil. He's saying, you're of the synagogue of Satan. Because they meet these religious leaders. They met in their Sanhedrin at that day. But you know what? They met in the synagogues Sabbath after Sabbath. These same people whom Jesus says, your father is the devil. So the synagogue of Satan is where the Jews, or you can even say the religious leaders included, meet regularly to practice Judaism. You're like, wait, did I hear that right? If you're wanting to practice Judaism and you meet week after week in your works-based religion, somehow thinking that if you perform the works as mandated and commanded in the Old Testament, that somehow you're in? Is that not what the religious leaders did in Jesus' day? And did they not also have traditions from their rabbis written in their Talmud that added to pretty much the requirements of Scripture and elevated traditions and in some cases even elevated their traditions over God and His Word? And the one example that comes to mind, remember when, you know, when he says um, that when Jesus was rebuking them because they elevated their traditions over, like for example, the law of God where honor your father and mother. So one of God's commandments is to honor your father and mother. But there was a tradition that they had to take a certain part of their, whatever their, their monies and dedicate and put it aside and offer it in the temple. So if their mother and father were in need, they'll say, hey, you know, mom and dad, I would have helped you, but you know what? I have this tradition that we need to set aside a certain amount and put it aside and give it as an offering to God. He goes, you just nullified the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. And that's part of Judaism. And we know through Scripture, and especially in Paul's ministry of proclaiming the Gospel by no works of the law, will any man be justified? Rather, the law is to bring about the knowledge of sin and to point us to Messiah, who fulfilled all the requirements of the law, died in our place, so that in turn, by having faith in Him, He imputes to us righteousness. So with that, let's also look at now the middle of verse 9. <laughs> Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. We're going to get into some nuances here. Because when you hear Jews, you think the 12 tribes of Israel. But if you want to get technical here, Jews or Iudaios, that speaks of one ethnicity, but also it is concerning the land of Judea. So there is a group who claim to be Jews, ethnically or by citizenship, who, are, uh, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie and is not true. 
So when you say, when someone says that they are Jews, you're saying and you're relating to their ethnicity, but that ethnicity is also tied to the region and the land of Judea. And that's why sometimes it'll say the the lost people of the house of Israel. Now you know you're not talking about the Jews as far as those who are from the southern part of Israel, but there's the house of Israel as well. And we know this through the divided kingdom. But there are those who say that they are Jews, Jesus says, and are not. And Paul, he gives us great insight into this and takes us to Romans 9. How many of us are familiar with Romans 9? You know, um, surprisingly, some, I guess, teachers or preachers have some reservations in going to Romans 9 because it could be controversial. Well, I wouldn't call it controversial. It's very insightful when it comes to the elective purposes of God. But I do want to call out a point when Paul makes here in Romans 9, talking about not all who are Israel are descended from Israel. And I want to pick it up in Romans 9, verses 6 and 7. So when we get to this part in Romans, Paul just went through his great masterpiece of proclaiming and writing for us the gospel in its full counsel in one book. And it's captured in the book of Romans. After being done giving us the full gospel in written form, the question comes up, well, what about the people of Israel? What happens to them? Because now the gospel is bearing fruit in the church, in the body of Christ. What happened to the people of Israel? It might seem that somehow, okay, maybe the word of God has failed, even though he made a promise to them, even though they're, you know, they started off as his elect, something happened and went south, and maybe the word of God is not quite, maybe it failed in some way. And God had to call an audible. And Paul picks up on this thought in verse verse 6. Let's pick it up there. He goes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So Israel, in their state, as generally speaking, not acknowledging Jesus as their Messiah. I mean, there's some Messianic Jews, even starting with the apostles. But just generally speaking, as the, the whole house of Israel, they're not there. And Paul is saying, well, Their state isn't because the Word of God has failed. He says this. He goes, For they are not Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But he says, But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. We're like, okay. They in context here are the Israelites according to the flesh. So for they who are Israelites according to the flesh are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And Paul is speaking against the notion of blaming God for Israel's disobedience, rebellion, and killing their Messiah. So if there is this you know, notion, somehow blaming God or that the word of God has failed for Israel's disobedience, rebellion, and killing their Messiah, is somehow that God has some culpability here. Paul is correcting that. It's not as though the word of God has failed. First of all, for they are not Israel who are descended from Israel. And Paul wrote, the reason for their disobedience, rebellion, and hardness of their heart in killing Jesus was not because the word of God has failed, because they are not Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants, 
Meaning, the reason being, he, starts, he makes mention of a promise here. He says, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. He says, but, he goes, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Meaning, if you are ethnically Israel, ethnically, by lineage, and you're claiming to be children of God or Abraham's descendants, but you're not children or descendants if you didn't receive the promise that came through Isaac, then you're not from Israel. You're not children of the promise, is another way to say it. And this is precisely what Paul says in the next verses. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was also Rebekah when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, and not, by, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. When Paul is referring to the promise here, he is referring to the Abrahamic covenant, and we've covered that quite a bit in our studies Here's where Paul is getting at in this portion of text. The promise was initiated by God, the Abrahamic covenant. When he called Abram, he goes, Abram, he goes, leave your father and his household and go to a land that I will show you and I will bless you. And the rest, you know, the rest is history from there. But God is the one who appeared to Abram and initiated the promise. And that promise was initiated by God to Abram, whose name was later changed by God to Abraham. And then that promise to bless him and make his descendants great, as numerous as the stars of the sky. Well, he had a son, Abraham, through Hagar, Ishmael. But the promise didn't go to Ishmael or through Hagar because God says, from your own body, even though they're as good as dead, he goes, you will have a son and I will promise to bless him. The blessing, when he called him in the first place, that he goes, I'll make you as numerous as the stars of the sky. And the blessing of promise ultimately pointing to Messiah. It passed. God initiated it. He says, it's going to, Abram, leave your father. It's on his terms. And he goes, oh, okay, oh, Abram and Sarah tried to manipulate the promise through having a child, having Abram have a child through Hagar. And he says, when I said I was going to bless you, and, and multiply your descendants. That promise, that Abrahamic covenant that I'm making with you, it wasn't so that you can have it through Ishmael. He goes, you're going to have it through Isaac. You're going to have a child around this time next year when you talk to him. And they had a child. So that promise, God initiated. It went from Abram. And then God, even though they had Ishmael, he says, no, that promise is going to continue to Isaac through Rebekah. And then from there, Isaac had two sons, had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older twin who was born first, and then Jacob came last. But the promise didn't go to the older, it went to the younger. Because God says here, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, just kind of stay with me. Because there is going to be 
There are some Jews who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie in our synagogue of Satan. And here in Romans 9, when it concerns the entire people of Israel, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Meaning, and if it's, if it's in reference to the Abrahamic covenant, it didn't, that promise didn't pass through necessarily their lineage, but it was by the promise. And that promise went from Abraham to Isaac, not to Esau, but to Jacob, even before any of them were born. So this is another way to say this. The Abrahamic covenant was God's choice. And Romans 9 nails that. And the terms of the promise was God's choice. And the furtherance of that promise remained God's choice. It was never on man's choice or man's lineage, although he did it through that race. So with this in mind, now let's go back to our main verse. He says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Another way to say this, those who say that they are Jews and are not, they're not children of the promise. They're saying they're children of the promise. They're Abraham's descendants. Isn't that what the Pharisees and the religious leaders said? Hey, we're Abraham's descendants. And Jesus is saying, well, by you wanting to kill me, you're saying you're a Jew. You're saying you're a descendant of the people of Israel. He goes, you're not. You're not children of the promise. Now let's look at the last part of verse 9. He says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who see that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come down, come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. See there in the beginning of the middle of verse 9, he goes, I will make them. Again, it's prophecy. Let me ask a rhetorical question. When is this going to happen? When the kingdom's here. This group the synagogue of Satan will be commanded by the Lord Jesus to come before these Philadelphian believers, bow down at their feet, and make them know, genosco, and this is the knowledge of experiential knowledge. They're going to experience this. They're not just, it's not just head knowledge. They're going to experience this act. And they're going to know through that experience that Jesus loved them, agapo of them. So there is a truth this will happen when the kingdom of God is established on earth. A pretty cool promise, don't you think? So I want to open this up for a little brownie points here. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who see that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Okay, here's some brownie points. Now this is going to happen sometime in the future when the kingdom of God is here. Which parable fits best? When, potentially, will this act of the synagogue of Satan bow down, at least for here, minimally, I'm not going to expand it just yet. Let's just stick to the context for now, but we'll see. It's going to expand beyond here. Which parable is in play of when that act is going to happen? I gave you a hint. It's a judgment parable. Does anyone want to take a guess? Okay, I'm saying this fits. 
when Jesus says, when, the, when he comes and his angels come with him and sits on his throne, and we get the sheep and the goats judgment, he will separate the sheep and the goats. And to the, to the, to the sheep on his right, what did he say? I have an open door. Okay. Just put it all together. Come, you who are blessed of my Father. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. You know the story. Lord, when, when, when did we do such and such to you? He goes, truly, truly, I say to you, to the extent you did these, to these brethren of mine, you did it to me. They loved each other. Just as Jesus modeled to his disciples and loved them and even washed their feet. You do that for one another. He goes, you did it to me. To the goat, away. To the eternal fire prepared for you, right? For our, You didn't do these things. And they'll say the same thing. Well, when did we not do those things? He goes, when you didn't do these to the least brethren of mine. Because you didn't do it to me. It fits. Before their throne, make them bow. I have loved them and then cast away. It fits. So the parable of the sheep and the goats, judgment, is the judgment that will take place before the kingdom or when the kingdom of God is here. This is not the white throne judgment. That's a separate judgment. And it's completely different as we will see even when that falls at the very end. So I don't know if you've read these parables of the sheep and goats and somehow thinking it's the same judgment. No. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of David, you can even say, is the central theme in all of Scripture. The kingdom of David is going to be a real kingdom where the, Jesus will sit on his throne and he will separate the groups. The sheep will be let in and the goats will be cast away. So what we're going to do is we'll pick it up in verse 10 for our next study. Now, I probably see this all the time. You don't want to miss that one. The hour of testing. You want me to kind of spoil a little bit? What do you think it means? It's an hour of testing. It's an hour of testing. <laughs> hmm. It is. There's an hour carved out in human history of testing. It's pretty gnarly. But we're, but we're not going to get there just yet. I'm going to start to introduce us to some of these things, but this is the one that, you know, I, at least I, I get excited about because there's just a lot of, I think, confusion about the day of the Lord, the day of wrath, the day of God. Now there's this hour of testing, and we're going to walk through it and seeing, okay, what is this hour of testing? Because it's even in the understanding of the hour of testing, when you get into different views in eschatology, they'll say, okay, well, the rapture must, you know, then you make the rapture fit in certain places because you're kept out from, and then, does the, then those who are here, or, or is the unrepentant church then go through this thing? And sometimes they blur, the, even blur whether a tribulation period and the hour of testing somehow mesh. But we're going to try to, first of all, stay away from those labels we're just going to go through the scripture and seeing he's saying because of their faithfulness and their perseverance they will be kept from this hour of testing and would it surprise you that scripture has a lot to say thank you so much for listening today to truth matters church 
If you're enjoying this expository study through Revelation, consider joining us in person or online every Friday night. Our small group study is interactive and is followed by a Q&A session so we all have the chance to better digest the text. You can find out more at truthmatterschurch.org. And if you're blessed by the teachings you've been hearing, consider supporting Truth Matters Church with a small financial donation. You can also give online at truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.